0: Welcome to the Nature Recovery Podcast. We're going to take a closer look at some of the solutions to counter biodiversity decline. And we'll find out more about the people behind these ideas. Hello and welcome to the Nature Recovery Podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Thomas. Uh, This edition is going to be a small bite-sized edition. It's just a taster of a wonderful conversation I had with Emma Maris. Uh, Emma is a really, really inspiring writer. Um, If you like this conversation, please go and do some Googling, check out her articles in The Atlantic um, or read Wild Souls. It's a really amazing book. She really grapples with the complexity of conservation and nature recovery and the various conundrums that come up in there. So it's just a short one, but I hope it gives you a taster and allows you to go and explore more of her work, which is highly recommended. Okay, over to Emma. I'm joined today by Emma Maris. Emma Maris is an award-winning environmental writer. She's written for many publications, including The Atlantic, National Geographic, Wired, The New York Times, Nature and Outside. She has a master's in science writing from Johns Hopkins University. In 2011, she published her first book, Rambunctious Garden, Saving Nature in a Post-Wild World. And in 2016, she gave a TED talk about seeing the hidden nature that surrounds us, which has been watched well over a million times, I think well over 1.4 million times at least. Um, In 2021, her second book, Wild Souls, Freedom and Flourishing in the Non-Human World, was published. And I personally loved it. Of all of the writing of Emmas that I've read, it's not only been enjoyable, but it's given me a great education around some of the issues in conservation. And it's also really challenged me. Many of the aspects in ecology or environmentalism can feel like they're settled, well-defined, and that they're robust knowledge. But Emma seems quite happy in her writing to unpick these aspects and show the reader that the reality is nowhere near as simple or as settled as it might seem. So I'm delighted to have her here with me today. Welcome to the podcast, Emma. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Okay, so we are the levy Hume Centre for Nature Recovery and so whenever anyone comes on the show uh, we like to ask them what nature recovery means to them. And I think of all the people I've spoken to so far, your book, actually, Wild Souls, really made me question the utility of the phrase nature recovery and highlighted a number of problems with it that I hadn't considered. So I'm really interested uh, what nature recovery means to you.
1: Yeah, well, uh, in fact, since I got here, I've been asking people, recover to what? Uh, the the notion of recovery implies that there is a single sort of correct or healthy state for any particular ecosystem to be in. And that's something that I've challenged in both of those books that you mentioned, um, because that's just sort of not how uh, ecology works, right? Like ecosystems change all the time, either with human uh, influence or without human influence. Um, They evolve, components evolve, the climate changes, glaciers come, glaciers go, things move around. And so uh, sort of uh, the question of what a, a system should look like um, is often presented as a scientific one, but I think the real theme in my work has been pointing out that, in fact, this is actually a value, deeply value-laden human conversation about what we want our landscapes to look like and what they should have in them and how they should function. Um, so recovery, uh, to me, sort of implies that, it's a, that that the correct state is settled, Whereas I maintain that it is up for debate mm-hmm. uh, what the sort of desirable state of any given site is, so I don't know. Uh, I, I I think if you want to consider renaming your center, you know, I'd be happy to consult on that process for a reasonable hourly fee. But uh, excellent. I think uh, I think it's a, it does open a, a lot of questions.
0: Absolutely, and, and like I say, I think I think the stuff that i read by yours really made me think about that, especially when, you know, you have the sort of glorification of the. Uh, the holocene and actually when things were found but who found them in in what state? and there's a lot of kind of politics there as well i mean do you, do you think it has usefulness and I, I suppose i'm thinking more about you know there is a human element but clearly things aren't great mm. and so there needs to be something and, and conservation maybe sounds like the wrong thing because that sounds like we're trying to freeze things and maybe the recovery is more about uh, a reconnection of, of humans to nature, or, or something like that. Is that I don't know. Where would you, if I was to get you, uh, as you're here, yes. uh, and you're not charging the hourly fee? Yeah, yeah. Uh, a fr- uh, where, a where, where would be? Where would you kind of? Uh...
1: Yeah, I think I think that what you said about reconnection is actually uh, definitely a use, a potentially more useful framework than this notion that okay, there's there's state X that is correct, and all other states are incorrect, and we must get it back to state eight. A- just, you know, whatever that correct state is, I think that that's uh, overly simplistic and there's a number of problems with that. But I think that what you, you know, the kind of notion of reconnection, I think is much more uh, potentially useful. So uh, you know, I tend to think about, you know, there are certain ecosystems that we can look around and broadly among us, even if we have many disagreements about exactly what we'd like to see, we can agree that what we're seeing is not ideal. Uh, maybe there's very low biodiversity, maybe there's, uh, maybe it's, you know, eroding into the sea, maybe it's a big toxic algal bloom and nobody can swim in it. You know, there's lots of reasons why a system might be not working for us or not working for the, the organisms that live in it. Um, and I certainly do think that history is incredibly useful in terms of uh, giving us ideas about what, what systems could look like. So I'm not saying we throw out all of environmental history and it doesn't matter and we start from scratch in any place by any means. I, I don't think anyone who, who thinks about this stuff does. In fact, you know, a great example I think of that is the, the recent interest in the UK and Ireland about looking at temperate rainforest r- restoration, which is something that's quite trendy and, and new yeah. at the moment. I'm, I'm just as enthused about this myself, um, but but you know it doesn't necessarily mean that we have to kind of perfectly imitate exactly what these rainforests would have looked like in year dot. But learning about these rainforests, how they m- might have functioned, and sort of playing with what kinds of temperate rainforests we might be able to operationalize in the future, um, all of that I think is is useful because what it is is it's sort of... Um, it's looking at biodiversity and it's also looking at our relationships with other species and what kind of relationships we want to have with them and how we want those to play out in the future. Um, You know, I think a lot of the interest in in restoring landscapes is also in restoring lost relationships between people Mm. and other species.
0: Yeah, I find that fascinating. I mean, we had uh, guy shrubstroll come to the center and obviously yeah, I'm really sad and, I missed that talk. Yeah, it was great. And you know and that, that kind of that cultural point of someone actually saying, look what we have or, or had or or what we could have mm-hmm. and to value this ecosystem and that connection then seems to have I'm not saying it's just down to his book, but there's certainly part of a movement that's come around from his work that I think is 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 pushing uh you know nature organizations to 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 invest more in this. Um find I find it interesting that, you know, different ecosystems can get can kind of get good marketing you know yes no one's no one's uh, you know why why is i would love forests but they're kind of this climax vegetation you know the apex of, of where things go to um but when i you know when you talk to people about scrubland and like nettles and we it just doesn't sound as appealing but for biodiversity they can be they can plastic. be fantastic fantastic
1: yeah, yeah. I, I mean and i think what's sort of just interesting to think about in a in a place uh you know like the uk is that a given site could have multiple potential valuable future states, you know, mm. you might have some place that you could either envision as returning to some kind of temperate rainforest state or you could imagine it as some kind of mosaic grassland, you know, uh, tree park like thing with grazers. In the same site, both of those might be exciting future states or something more cultural, you know, some kind of food forest perhaps. Mm. and and. Sort of picking the future of, of a particular given site is, is a complicated process. There's not a single right answer necessarily.
0: Yeah, yeah. And, and certainly when it comes to the financing, that's one of the controversies of you know, biodiversity net gain, is it doesn't, it doesn't consider the potential of a site. You know, the, the, we kind of, the way it's measured in terms of uh, biodiversity is, is very static and habitat-based. But anyway, I want to go on to my next question, uh, which is so about your book Wild Souls. It's been called Thoughtful, Insightful, Wise. Um, and that it contains a groundbreaking and provocative new vision for our relationships with and responsibilities to the planet's wild animals. Um, It covers everything from ethics and morality, from hunting, uh, to genetic engineering, uh, to compassionate conservation, and a number of fascinating case studies uh, thrown in uh, which really challenged the way I thought about conservation. Um, Writing a book is not something that anyone does lightly. so I'm interested, in reading what was the inspiration for writing it. And given that your writing definitely changed a number of my preconceptions, and I can see my thoughts changing as I was reading it, but also I love the fact that there's some quite open moments of self-reflection within the book, where we get to follow your own thought processes. So, you know, did you come into it with quite a fixed, okay, this is what I'm going to write about, or this is the point, or did writing it change your views on <coughs> the relationship of humans with the natural world?
1: Yeah, the reason I wrote this book is because I had questions that I didn't have answers for. And so I thought, well, I will, I, will just, I will figure this out. I will come to, you know, and one of the central questions that I had was how to sort of reconcile conservation ethics, which tend to really focus on populations and species and biodiversity as the sort of valuable things that we want to boost or, or protect, with uh, animal welfare or animal rights, which is something I was less familiar with. But which really takes as its starting point the notion that individuals have some sort of moral worth, and you can't uh, just either you know treat them as a means to an end, or you can't cause needless suffering. Um, and the reason that I was interested in trying to reconcile these two kind of ethics was that in my writing about subjects like invasion biology and sort of new conservation approaches, I was noticing that a lot of conservation actually has to do with killing animals, um, because in many situations and this is especially true in islands uh, a, a big threat to uh, local species is introduced animals and so a lot of times uh, conservationists are going out there with guns or with poisons or traps and what struck me is sort of interesting about this uh, and sort of this tension is that a lot of people who love nature sort of broadly conceived are the same people who love animals um, And yet, here, animals were being killed in order to protect nature. Hmm. So how do do we feel our way through this? And I wasn't as familiar with the sort of animal welfare or animal rights side of this stuff because I've been an environmental reporter for most of my career. So I was interested in learning more about that. You know, how do we decide which animals deserve moral worth? You know, is an oyster the same as a chicken, the same as a human? Uh, You know, what are the theories, what are the ethical theories here? And I didn't know, going into it, how whether these things could be reconciled, and if so, how. So it was really, and I think that comes through in the book, is it was really sort of my own journey of trying to figure out what do we owe wild animals, especially mm-hmm. in a world that we've changed so profoundly. You know, we've, we've all heard this idea that the best thing to do is to let nature take its course and that's how I was taught to basically approach wild animals as they're doing their thing and you just leave them be, mm-hmm. but in a world that we 've so radically reshaped that we 've heated up that we 've changed the, these ecosystems we 've massively converted land uh, they 're all living in our a world that we 've made, so this notion that we can somehow leave them be or that they are separate from us seems false, so I wondered what that meant about our obligations to them um, as individuals you know mm. not as this, the population of of uh, wolves, uh, or the species of wolves, but I said that wolf right there that I can see in my headlights. What yeah. do I owe that guy? Um, so these were open questions that I had, and the book was really my journey to try to sort them out and come to some kind of conclusions. Yeah. Um, I was hoping that I would come to some sort of magical algorithm that you could use to, to figure out these, some of these moral dilemmas. Um, and I am going to provide a spoiler now, which is that it isn't that simple, alas. No. It's it's very complicated. Um, I do provide a little bit of a my own sort of personal um, recipe for beginning to think about some of the complexities. Yeah. Uh, but I don't, I can't give you an equation, an ethics equation.
0: No, I did, I, the, last, the last chapter or so I did, I found very helpful because I was kind of going into a tailspin of, of uh of of sort of flipping around but there is some very useful kind of concrete uh, pragmatic uh guidance i guess in there but it's interesting just you know literally just today uh a, a friend has said you know she's got squirrels in her roof and the, they 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 want to get rid of them because someone's going the council are going to kind of come and kill them and she's trying to see can can she get them out now as a forester i'd be like well you just trap them and kill them right these gray squirrels are invasive um and i have to flag that if you you know if she manages to catch them she has to legally kill them because that's the they're invasive species but uh, having read your book i was like okay no you're this is someone that's dealing with an individual animal and that this is a very very different thing so i I've tried to give us some advice i don't think there's much that they can do um in there but it but it kind of really actually softened having having done a bit of forestry work and if you do forestry it's just like yeah squirrels and deer right the, these are these are things that you need to manage these are mm. your management plan great. um but actually reflecting back that that we have a relationship with an individual squirrel my wife spent lockdown you know having feeding a nut to a squirrel which is you know but would come and visit her okay and that gave her uh, whatever great hope uh, during a time of stress, um, yeah, ma- many other factors going on there. Um, I think she preferred the squirrel to me at some points, but it's, but it, yeah, yeah, those those were those individual relationships are are sometimes you know more powerful than our species. I, I don't relate to to wolves, but um, I can remember experiences with an individual animal much more than I have any relationship with the with the welfare of a species of that animal. So, um, and I think those can actually spur. Well, certainly for me, those those individual moments have, have spurred on a sort of a, a growth and a desire to do more environmental work. Um, on that, one of the things and I think you've hinted on this that I really struggle with at the moment is that grappling that the complexity in conservation and nature recovery um, and your book definitely educated me on this. But it's probably just made me realize with every page that I turn and with everything, oh, it's, it, you know, the, the answer in science tends to be was like, well, yes, sometimes it depends. Actually, it's a bit more complex than that. Right. Um, and I was quite happy planning, you know, for me, it's like, let's just plant trees. We're going to save the world. And I think there's still value with that. But, you know, trees are fundamentally decent and they don't talk back. Uh, but then you, I talk to people here and they're saying, well, you know, we've got woody encroachment in the savannah. The trees are terrible for the savannah or You know, peat in our ecosystems. And suddenly it's like, OK, Maybe just planting trees isn't isn't the answer. Um, and I think an example from your book is you know the the, the dingo population where Australia is spending vast amounts of money fencing off. When we say fencing, actually they're dropping poison on either side of the fence to protect livestock. Um, while at the same time they're spending millions to kind of kill feral cats and other non-native predators, both of which are very costly scheme, cause lots of harm and suffering. Um, and Some of the people you you, you kind of you would talk to in the book raise the point that actually if you let the dingoes go free, they would kill the cats and kind of the ecosystem would evolve and things would start to be kept in check. Not everyone agrees with that, but it's actually there's no simple way of uh, defining who is right and who is wrong and what's best without kind of just going, well, let's try it and see what happens. Um, At the same time of this kind of this message of, well, it depends and it's a bit more complicated you know we're surrounded by messages that are very simple like you know buy this car go on this holiday do this thing you'll be happy you know this buy these trainers they're good for the environment or or whatever uh and so the you know the the narrative of science I think is sometimes driven out by that narrative of like no it is this simple you just buy this thing you'll be happy drink a coke you'll be fine it's uh so how do you balance that um those those sort of the complex narrative versus the simple narrative and also against the fact that to me, the most powerful thing I feel a lot is, you know, we are running out of time. It's getting worse. We've got to do something, um, and and you know, the the status quo is bad, and, and something should change. And sort of um, more and more, I, I realize that remaining calm is quite a good thing. But there is a narrative of like, you know, we are in a time of crisis, which which I I can, I can agree with certainly when it comes to looking at kind of biodiversity numbers, um, and yeah, so. How do you grapple with the concept of wanting to do the right thing for nature when the right thing is not simple, and especially against this backdrop of we need to act because time is running out?
1: Great question. <laughs> I, I sort of feel like uh, it's actually more complicated than that. Could you know, I, I'm always searching for um, arguments that you could fit on a t-shirt, and like that actually is the right answer a lot of times, and you can fit it on a t-shirt. It's mm. actually more complicated than that. You know, yeah. it, it, it is often the take-home message of the stuff that I write. Um, And, you know, I think that as much as it might be tempting to try to simplify environmental narratives so that they can compete in the marketplace of ideas with these simple narratives that you mentioned that are coming from a sort of capitalistic place. I think that's the wrong move because I think we we just have to acknowledge the complexity here. And people aren't as stupid as we think uh, or as people think. Uh, People can handle complexity. You know, Mm. people are interested in complexity. Um, these these kind of complex conundrums about you know whether uh, certain animals should be controlled so that other populations can thrive and where should you have trees and where should you have grasslands are, are stuff that people can grapple with in a meaningful way.
0: So that was just an excerpt from a lovely conversation I had with Emma. Um, hopefully we'll hear more from her throughout the series. Uh, we've got some great guests coming up next. We're gonna be talking um, about ash dieback and we're going to be talking about the social sciences within conservation um, as ever please write in with any suggestions for guests topics or questions if you want to find out more about nature recovery from a certain angle uh, we have some amazing experts here and we'd love to get them on the show to talk to you um, but this show is for you so please write in it's a uh, nature recovery at ouce.aux.ac.uk We'd love to hear from you. Just mark your email with podcast as the title and we'll address it on the show. All right, thanks and have a great week. You've been listening to the Nature Recovery Podcast with me, Stephen Thomas. Please don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you can, please consider leaving us a review as it will really help other people to find us. Also, why not consider sharing this episode with someone you know? You never know you might get them interested in the wonderful field of nature recovery. If you want to find out more about the activities of the levy Centre for Nature Recovery, you can find us on Twitter at Nature Recovery, or you can visit our website for more information. That's www.naturerecovery.ox.ac.uk. Thanks so much for listening.